that started to open my eyes to the fact that maybe things aren't exactly what they seem. I didn't question all viruses. I was just kind of skeptical about HIV. If I'm going to look into each virus and I'm going to say they never purified and isolated this virus, I want to know that. I'm going to go back to the original papers and check each one. Hello, everyone. That was the voice of today's guest, Mike Stone. Mike is the author of the Viral Lige blog, where he dissects the scientific underpinning of viruses, questioning if there's really anything there at all. This is one of the most contentious topics I cover, giving rise to very strong feelings all around. After discussing his research, I asked Mike what his experience of efforts to dialogue have been, and if the no virus paradigm is correct, what on earth would that mean for our belief in a scientific worldview in general? I start out by asking what led him into this research. We all at one point believed in the viruses, you know, believed that these um, pathogenic entities exist and we can transfer them back and forth. I mean, we're raised that way from birth. But um, for me, the, the questioning really started back in 2017. I had a family member that was misdiagnosed with HIV. And just based on what we knew of this person's history, we knew that that diagnosis was impossible. Like it just, the timeline between when they were diagnosed with HIV and then when they said that they had full blown AIDS, which was within like six to eight weeks, was ridiculous. It was unheard of. Like normally they say it lies dormant and you eventually build up to AIDS, but they're like, no, this person had full blown AIDS. And like, well, just a few weeks ago, there was a negative test. So how did they go from an HIV negative status to an HIV positive status, then to full-blown AIDS? And so that was really in my mind. I'm like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Knowing this person, their history, um, we knew is basically an impossibility that that test result was accurate. Um, and so I started, at least with my journey, was more research, like, I knew this person was sick, so how can I help them? You know, what what kind of medications were they wanting to put this person on, and and how uh, best can I, you know, look into this to find out if those treatments will be effective or if they were toxic? You know, kind of along those lines. Um, but throughout the course, then they ended up um, diagnosing this person with tuberculosis instead, and so it. Uh, was kind of a, a weird situation where um, that started making me question the diagnosis even more. And I I don't even remember how it happened, but I, back then, I think back in 2017, like if you Googled something like HIV, uh, they weren't as restrictive. And yeah. so I somehow stumbled upon like, the virus myth website and rethinking um, HIV or rethinking AIDS uh, by uh, David Crow, his group. And that started to open my eyes to the fact that, you know, maybe things aren't exactly what they seem. Maybe this diagnosis wasn't accurate. Maybe the tests that they're using are not, uh, you know, they weren't calibrated or validated to actual viruses. And so it made me start to question the existence of HIV. And so I started going down that rabbit hole. But even then, at that time, I didn't question all viruses. I was just kind of skeptical about HIV. And so it, it essentially became my gateway into this whole, uh, you know, 
theory that viruses don't exist. They're not theory, but the lack of evidence for viruses. Okay, so I believe you have background prior to the HIV research you were doing. And I'm also curious to know any kind of conspiratorial background or cynicism about the state, about foreign policy. So, you know, I interviewed Mike Wallace, for example, and he's seen right. all this kind of corruption going on in the State Department and he understands what trench bureaucracy is. So it's not that hard for him to go, oh, yeah, well, the medical world is kind of similar then. It's kind of the same thing going on where ideas become entrenched and you get rewarded for accepting those ideas. What, at the same time, when I encounter ideas that really shake me, like the idea that COVID wasn't really a thing or viruses don't exist, I can feel the rust on the gears in my mind, like grinding against her. It's a really difficult thing. I can feel my mental uh, pushback. So how did 2017 right. find you in terms of your mental um, ability to, uh, to kind of take on these ideas? Right. I, I mean, I was. I was skeptical of other areas. Like at that time, I think... Um, by 2017, I was already skeptical of vaccines because I had a, an issue with my son when he was born. He was vaccinated and became really sick. I had already, um, in the back of my mind, I was hesitant about vaccines. Um, my wife, she was against vaccines, but she, we, I had been raised, oh, we need to do these. And so um, I think we did his first year of shots, and then he started getting sick after one injection, and, and I had to he had, I don't remember what they diagnosed him with, but it was an almost immediate. He had like an allergic reaction. He uh, could barely breathe. And I remember having to hold him and he was just a little, you know, uh, maybe I'm, I'm even sure if he was a year at that time and I was having to use a nebulizer on him and he was struggling with me and he didn't want to have this breathing mask on his face and everything. And it, it was horrible just witnessing that and, and going through that. And so that really woke me up to the whole, vaccine lie. But even before that, I was questioning things like uh, the 9-11, you know, the, the official story about 9-11. Um, I believe a friend of mine had turned me on to some of the, the stuff on, along the lines of like the Illuminati and the deep state and, and mm -hmm. different things along uh, Freemasons, all that. So I had, you know, there was some ideas in my head as far as can we trust everything that we see? You know, are, are they being completely honest with us? Do they have our best intentions um, as far as uh, the information that we are being presented with? Uh, but still, even then, at that time, it wasn't like I was full blown, like, oh, yeah, they're they're out to get us or, or everything that they're showing us is fake. I just had some doubt, I guess, so to speak. So it, it did. I did have a kind of a. Uh, a mindset of like I wanted to look at things critically you know if I'm being presented with information I want to I, I wanted to research it myself and and get to the truth not just believe what I was being told okay with regard to AIDS I think it's one of the more compelling arguments that can be made and I don't know if you'd agree with this but when I look at this I find with some uh, claimed viruses the argument that they're not actually viruses, I find is really compelling, like polio and AIDS, I would say. And I think the reason for that is, is because there are clearly other culprits you could point to and say, that man was at the crime scene too, Your Honor, with a, a bloody knife in his hand. So with, with polio, right. you have the environmental pollutants, like, and I'm only as good as what I've read here, but it, as, as I've understood it, uh, lead arsenic is used uh, as a insecticide right at the yeah. time you start to see paralysis in kids and guess what lead arsenic causes. And then 
the whole thing falls away when DDT stops being used in the 50s, polio goes away, although actually it shifts over to the third world where those things haven't been used, but now they are. So you seem to have these tight geographic and time-based uh, correlations there. And the same with HIV, like anyone could look at the potency of AZT as a drug and say, well, well, clearly this was killing people. Clearly Freddie Mercury died of AIDS poisoning, didn't he? I mean, how could he not have done? So, um, but then there's also this quite technical side of things as well, of um, looking at the validity of the testing of uh, identifying and really trying to understand what's going on down uh, the electron microscope. So um, I think I'm bundling up a few questions here, but do you sure. find, did you find, and do you still find that there are some areas where there's a really strong case and other areas where, you know, I don't know, maybe I don't know what's going on with chickenpox or measles, or, or do you feel similarly across the board? And what do you find uh, most compelling in this? Because for me, it's been like the more macro stuff, like where there's been another corporate. But do you find the the micro stuff uh, equally as convincing? Yeah, I mean, I've taken them each by like a case by case basis. That's what I've tried to do. So like if um, I was looking into chicken pox, for instance, I wanted to go back to the original research and see what was the, the you know, what was the evidence that was presented? Um, same with smallpox or or polio, any of those. Um, and so I think when you get down some, you you really realize, first of all, what what really struck me was, um, are, were you familiar with the work of uh, David Crow, the late researcher, Canadian researcher? No, I'm not. Okay, well, he was a huge influence on me when I first started this journey. Basically, he was uh, president of the Rethinking AIDS um, organization, and he had a group on uh, Facebook called the Infectious Myth Group um, and Rethinking AIDS at the time. So I, I joined both those. And um, one thing he was really adamant about was that they have never, you know, they can claim isolation. They, they kind of bastardize the word of isolation of a virus, but they never actually purify and isolate a virus. And, and there's a difference. Like purify, purify, you mean, you know, you free um, whatever it is you're trying to find from contaminants, foreign elements, debris, pollution, you know, all that. And isolate means it's separated from everything else. And so they never actually do that with any virus. Like they, they won't go in and take, you know, the lung fluid of someone and completely purify and isolate a virus out of that. They just take the fluid and assume a virus is in there. They might use some purification techniques on these samples, but they never check to make sure that the particles that they assume are the virus actually are within those fluids. So it's a big distinction. They then, you know, take those and do the cell culture experiments and uh, will come up with some effects in a, a lab, you know, a Petri dish, and then put that under a microscope, an electron microscope, and claim that those particles are the ones that they assumed were already in those fluids, but they never check. And so that was, for me, the basis was like, if I'm going to look into each virus and I'm going to say, you know, they never purified and isolated this virus, I want to know that. I'm going to go back to the original papers and check each one. So I, I did that um, for quite a few viruses. I, I don't know if you've checked my, my site out on virology.com. I have a list of each virus and I, I tried as best as I can to find the original paper. Some you know, like smallpox, you know, that was back in like the 18, 17, 1800s, and they don't really have papers. That's always been a big um, concern of mine is just making sure that going to the original sources and, and seeing 
the methods that they utilize to, to find out for sure whether they actually could demonstrate that the particles that they were claiming were viruses were actually within the fluids that they claimed to be in. Um, and so that that was my main focus when I was going through each of these papers, because, um, you know, in order to adhere to the scientific method in order to prove, uh, you know, a cause and effect relationship, the thing that you are uh, claiming as the cause must be shown to exist first. You know, you can't have your virus coming after the experiments. You need to have it before you do the experiments. You have to actually show that this entity exists in reality. And so that was kind of the basis for what I did when I started investigating viruses and um, just looking to see whether they were actually using um, the fluids and, and actually attempting purification. And if they did, what level of purification they were claiming because they, they go in degrees, like as far as whether it can contain contaminants or not, which is kind of ridiculous because you would want those virus particles away from everything else if you're going to claim that they're the cause and nothing else within the fluids is the cause. Um, and then that led me to investigating the, the cell culture technique. I don't know how much you want to get into that, but, um, you know, you never, you cannot find any of these viruses they they cannot demonstrate that they're actually within the fluids without doing a cell culture experiment. They'll, they'll take the fluids and add it to a cell culture and then get a result and then claim that the virus was in there because of the result that they get from the, the cell culture experiment. But they can't demonstrate before that cell culture experiment that the virus ever existed. So it's really interesting because they're actually trying to look at an effect to claim a cause. It's the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. Okay, so I've heard Tom Cowan give an analogy of coffee, writing this in caffeine. If you wanted to demonstrate that caffeine uh, made someone excitable or uh, revved mm. up or something, um, you couldn't like take some coffee beans, uh, add hot water, add milk, add sugar, uh, maybe some cream and a little umbrella on top, have them drink it, and then claim if they got hyperactive that you knew caffeine was a stimulant, right? Because there's there's all these other factors there, and that's obvious. Right, that that would be like one of the you know core principles of science. That either you, you must isolate that which you're investigating. But what I hear is that the virologists seem to to miss that, and that's something I find like very very hard to understand. That how how could such an obvious point be missed? So I wonder what pushback do you get, or what justifications that does virology come up with to say, oh no no, we're not doing that at all. This is okay because X. Yeah, that, that's the that's the issue is that they just assume that the methods that they're doing are are correct. Well, this is how it's done. Or they'll be like, well, a virus needs a host cell in order to to replicate. So the only way it can be done is through a cell culture. Well, you know, it's circular reasoning. You, you have to show that the thing exists first before you know that it needs a host cell to replicate. You can't just assume that this thing you've never found actually in the fluids needs a cell. And then it's replicating because of the, the effect that you get after you've added all these different ingredients to the culture. Um, but, you know, other excuses we'll get um, is that you know, there's not enough viruses within the fluids to actually purify and isolate them. And so you need to, to grow them in cell culture first. And, you know, that really doesn't make any sense logically, because if they're going to claim that these particles exist within the sick person, and that they replicate enough to cause 
symptoms of disease, you should be able to find enough of them within the fluids. And um, I believe I got from Dr. Mark Bailey, he, had, he sent me one time, I cannot remember the exact number, but I think it was like they estimated 200 million virus particles in one sneeze or something like that. And so if they're estimating that there's all these like millions of virus particles in the fluids, but then they claim when they take the fluids, they don't have enough in there to find them. It just doesn't add up. So they, they always have an excuse, but the excuses are just horrible. Okay, so when virologists are looking down electron microscopes, they're saying, no, 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 this is crazy. We can point to the virus. It's there and it's this shape. And they can describe, like, I'm just to pick one example. I followed your work, uh, the writing you did on rabies, particularly because it was a big talking point when you went on the Skeptical podcast. So it was interesting to see the articles afterwards. And I, the thing I found particularly interesting was how, uh, I can't remember the exact name, but it, countries, you pointed out, have a, a financial incentive to declare themselves rabies-free. But then Australia has things like the rabid kangaroo virus or something, which isn't rabies. It, it's not that name. It's, maybe you remember it. Um, right. So it was really interesting on that macro level to see how disease, when diseases go away, there's often like a very similar disease crops up right next to it. And there's yes. obviously massive economic reasons for that. But just also sticking with the micro level um, for a moment, like I know Sam Bailey did a presentation on rabies. I think she, well, she did draw on your work uh, to do that. And that's just been critiqued um, with the microbiologist, uh, Dr. Dan Wilson, who I've made uh, critical videos off in the past, or one critical video on the hydroxychloroquine issue. Um, but Dr. Wilson is saying, look, the, the rabies, it's identifiable as this little bullet-shaped thing that, that you see when you look down the electron microscope. And that, that's one example. We could go through every virus, every claimed virus, and say there's this thing that it looks like. And if you open your medical textbook, you will see a picture of it. So I'm assuming if we all agree that that is being seen, what's the different interpretation coming from the no virus position that uh, what is what the nature of what is being seen is there? Yeah, the particles themselves. Mm. Um, yeah, basically they're, you know, just cellular, cellular debris is what they're, they're looking at. They create um, the death of the cell through the cell culture experiment, you know, because they, they'll take a, just for a quick example, let's just look at SARS-CoV-2. Um, they'll, they'll take, a, you know, a, the fluids from a, a sick patient and they'll add that to uh, a virus cell, which is a monkey kidney cell. And when they add that, well, actually, I, I apologize. I, I skipped a step. So first, they'll take the, the, the sample and they'll add it to what's called viral transport medium. And that in and of itself already contains different antibiotics, uh, antifungals. And uh, they'll have different, uh, what they call nutrient medium in there and, and, and different uh, chemicals. And so then they add that to a cell, which itself is maintained in antibiotics, antifungals. And um, normally you'll find like penicillin and streptomycin, which are toxic to kidney cells. And so they have a, a monkey kidney cell already, you know, incubating in uh, toxic antibiotics and antifungals that will damage it in the first place. And you add more of that along with the sample into the cell culture. And so they, they incubate this along with, um, you know, the blood of a cow, uh, fetal bovine serum, and they'll incubate this for a few days. And if they start to see this breakdown of the cell, uh, which they call the cytopathogenic effect, uh, that's their cue. That's the, that's the, um, 
you know, the, the effect that they're looking for to claim that a virus was actually within the sample from the patient. Um, and then once they get that effect, that is what they'll take. They'll take what's called the supernatant, the, the top layer, and they'll examine that underneath the electron microscope. And that's um, never a purified sample. It's, you know, containing a bunch of different uh, components in there. And we, we call it basically the point and declare method because what they're doing is they're putting it, the sample in there, which itself is going through a heavily altered um, steps just to become, just to be prepared for electron microscopy. They have to, um, you know, embed it in resin. They, they stain it with heavy metals. They dehydrate it and do all these sorts of things. And then they look for the particle that they feel, uh, you know, is the representation of their virus. You know, they, they are just searching. And I've seen studies where they can search for like days trying to find the particle that they think is their virus. And then they declare, okay, well, that's the one, that's what we got. And, and it's pretty ridiculous because one, one of the things, you know, with rabies, which you brought up, is they can't even generate the cytopathogenic effect in their cultures. So they will claim the rabies viruses within a culture without seeing the cytopathogenic effect, take the supernatant, put it under the, you know, in the electron microscope, and then claim if they find these bullet-shaped particles that that's the virus. But uh, interestingly, you can find that same bullet shape with other viruses as well. So it's um, it's not specific, but they'll try to claim that it is. Right. Okay. That's, yeah, you've answered my next question there, which is why I was going to ask, why would you have specific kind of shapes? Like the bullet shape would be for rabies. And I don't know if the star shape would be measles or whatever. Well, and yeah. you're saying that that's not the case, that you do find these right. shapes you know, all find... across the board. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's other bullet-shaped viruses that aren't rabies. <laughs> they, there's like, I, when I was looking into it, there's these fish viruses that um, can contain bullet shapes. Even uh, the para-influenza virus uh, can sometimes appear like a bullet. Um, I think even measles. If I remember correctly, I'd have to go through the paper again, but there are a bunch of different examples. Um, I think if I remember correctly is when I was looking in the Marburg virus, because the Marburg virus was discovered in the 60s, and that was kind of the precursor of the Ebola virus. And they were claiming that the shape was very similar to the rabies virus. And even though they claimed it was kind of a, a long filamentous um, shape, they could still find it in this, this bullet like um, these more likable particles when they were looking for the Marburg virus. And so they just claimed it was a different virus too. Um, and for the longest time, I think it was up until the 1980s, it was classified as a rabies virus. But then they changed it and said, no, it's completely different. Um, they do this with these taxonomic categories where they'll claim they're different viruses. They might look the same or they might have, you know, certain similar characteristics, but they're distinct viruses and uh, separate families, so to speak. So uh, they eventually did that with the Marburg virus and Ebola virus, even though they can look similar in electron microscope to rabies and other viruses, they're, they're supposedly different. I might be putting you on the spot here, but it just brings to mind that Japanese example where there was some environmental issue going on and everyone believed it was a virus 
and there was this quest to isolate and find the virus that turned out to be environmental. Can you, I'm, I'm getting this from Peter Duesberg's book early on, where he goes through things like beriberi and scurvy and how people believe there was some kind of viral infection for such a long period. Do you know what I'm referring to there? Yeah, you know, I oddly enough, I just recently read about that. And I, so I don't have a lot of in-depth knowledge on it, but I, I cannot remember the name of the, the um, it started with an S, but I can't remember the name of the, the supposed virus that they thought it was. But I do remember that like all the different tests that they were doing showed them that it was a virus. But then um, in the end, they found out it was some sort of uh, toxin, that environmental toxin. I don't know if it's a pesticide or something, but uh, they they definitively proved it wasn't a virus. It was an environmental issue, if I remember correctly. Hmm. Okay, coming back up to the macro level then, then we started talking about AIDS, and I said what, what I found compelling about that was the AZT and other environmental factors that could clearly account for the death rate. Right. What I found peculiar about my own psychology when I started reading more about the no virus position was that it really hadn't occurred to me, because I'd heard that thing about AIDS for probably 20 years, okay, and I'd been open to it, and it certainly made sense with the AZT thing, but... I hadn't thought through ever the implications of well, what does it mean if virologists, microbiologists can point to something and say, yeah, this disease is caused by that virus. That virus was seen under our electron microscopes there. And it really isn't. Like, what does that say about the rest of virology? And that it's strange to me to think now that didn't occur to me. And in the COVID era, initially, I shook my shoulders and thought, okay, this is another kind of swine flu, tomato flu kind of thing. And then I saw the death rate shoot up and i found that utterly compelling that completely convinced me that there was this deadly virus out there because what else could cause like a, a doubling of the death rate in the uk at that time and it was only a year later uh, reading the book virus mania uh, with talk of a look actually the drugs trials that were going on the hydroxychloroquine and all the things change um now i'm not attributing all those deaths to hydroxychloroquine trials but um what the kicker for me was to realize that i'd fallen into a a trap that I would like to think I was kind of cautious of, of not taking into account that when you change a complex system, the system itself readjusts itself. So um, things like people get put on end of life care pathways more quickly, or they start to use medical procedures like um, ventilators in hospitals, or the antibiotic prescription rate goes down. There's all these different things change in the medical system just when a virus is announced. So I'm just curious on, on your thoughts on, because I think the thing people found overwhelmingly compelling and scary was the increased death rate. So what kind of factors have you come across that could account for that outside of a, a viral paradigm? Right. Um, with, with COVID, definitely. Um, I think one of the biggest things, you know, they never needed uh, a virus in order to get people to believe in one. They just needed uh, a test, which is what they got with the PCR test. As long as they to convince people that a positive result was in, in effect a new virus. And um, they had enough stories out there that was scaring people into this belief that there's, I don't know if you remember early on in China, like they they were showing people dropping dead in the yeah. street, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> uh, doctors dying and stuff like that. So they had a, a really good uh, fear campaign going on very early, trying to scare people into believing that there's this threat that's coming out of China. And, you know, it's, it's very exotic. It's from the, the wet market in Wuhan where they eat these weird animals. And 
and jumped from animal to humans. And now it's going to be jumping from China to other countries. And so I, it, there was this lead up that I saw in the beginning months, like January, February, where they had very effective cycle of uh, propaganda that they're aiming at people to, to heighten their levels of fear. And um, uh, then they, even in early February, they're even talking about a lab leak. You know, February 2020, they were talking about lab leaks, uh, possibilities and things like that. So um, I think once you start you know, using the test, the PCR test, and you're creating all these or generating cases and you're uh, claiming that it's spreading, you're already getting people into a state in fear. I don't know if you've looked into it, but it can have very profound impacts on a person's health. It can even mimic, you can go through what they call the nocebo effect, where you mimic the exact symptoms that you're fearing. Mm. And so you have the media telling you, well, you're going to lose your sense of smell and taste. It's something that people were you know, experiencing well before COVID, but they just didn't pay attention to it. Now they're on the lookout for that, you know, or if you are experiencing difficulty breathing. Um, so people are getting scared by symptoms that they might've ignored in the past and going and getting tested and then getting put on different drugs that they shouldn't have been on. I mean, people were, they were using the antibiotics against what is a, you know, said to be a virus, which wouldn't be effective based on their narrative in the first place. And then we have the different restrictions. People are facing economic hardships uh, based on the lockdowns and the quarantines. A lot of the increase here with with deaths were due to the elderly population who were uh, isolated socially. You know, they were quarantined, they were tested regularly. So you had the fear just from that. You know, they, they had listened to the news. They, they were getting their concerns uh, just through what they watch and then they're being tested and seeing their, you know, being quarantined from their families, not being able to be near them. That has a, a huge impact on a person's health as well. So I think the success of the fear campaign mixed in with the uh, different medical treatments that they're doing, like you talked about with the increased ventilators that were being used to blow out people's lungs. They used remdesivir, which, you know, has the moniker run death is near basically uh, killing people through toxic treatments and um, that that can generate you know a short-term spike in deaths of course I mean they, they even admit that iatrogenic deaths is like the number the, the third leading cause of death and so I believe that was uh, what led to some apparent increase in death during those initial months and then you saw obviously it start to taper down as people uh became less fearful do you think the geography of the virus supposed viral movement demonstrates that so again one of the things i found most compelling was an article by klaus Kohling, dr klaus Kohling, on how when uh, the virus was the, the death rate sorry was at the highest anywhere in europe was in spain and portugal right next door is nothing at the same time and the same for um france and belgium very high Germany next to nothing, next to nothing going on there, which he said uh, demonstrates some virus because the virus can't move like that. Right. Now, I think this is quite difficult because I, I had Dr. Meryl Nass on the show, very much like the interview. Um, but she said the same thing about Wisconsin. She said, well, no, that's just how viruses move. So it was in New York, but it wasn't prominent in Wisconsin. I think that's next to New York. Um, my American geography. Uh, <laughs> uh, Wisconsin is no, more west, but. 
No, no, sorry, I've got the state wrong. Maine. Maine. Is Maine next to New York State? Oh, Maine, yes. Yes, yeah. right, yeah. Okay, sorry, I've got this, I think, yeah. So, um, and then I read about the use of ventilators in New York as compared to Maine. And, like, there's claims that uh, the New York government killed 30,000 people with ventilators. Well, that would get you a long way into their into their excess death spikes. So, do you think the um, geography and the supposed movement of the virus demonstrates a um, that it was that we're looking mostly at iatrogenic death? Oh yeah, I, I think you can definitely look at that and and come to you know that as a conclusion. And um, you know the other thing that I always look to as far as uh, what could have been uh, potentially contributing to these symptoms um, is based on geography. Is looking at the air pollution levels. Um, like in China and Italy and New York, some of the highest levels of air pollution. So you already have people that are in an environment where they're exposed to respiratory toxins and having difficulty breathing and different things like that. And so they'll be more inclined to look at these respiratory symptoms and go get tested. And then, you know, based on whatever results, if they're already afraid to get a positive result, they'll be put on uh, different uh, treatments that were unproven and basically experimental at the time. And and you did see an increase in death just based on, on the treatments that were given. And I, I think, um, uh, was it Dr. Scott Jensen in Minnesota had come out early during the, the pandemic and said that hospitals and doctors were incentivized uh, not only to uh, count cases as COVID, you know, they were fi financially rewarded for that, but also how many people they could put on a ventilator. So they got more money uh, if someone was diagnosed as a COVID case and if it was a COVID death and if they were put on a ventilator. So I think there's definitely a, a huge component as far as the the uh, iatrogenic death causing uh, an increase around that time. Okay, I'll just move to a couple of general questions to round off for me. The first one is that I can't ignore the parallels I've seen, I've been involved somewhere in the 9-11 truth movement to see the COVID truth movement come along and fracture along similar lines. So you seem to have these two broad camps of the, like the lab leak theory, okay? And then there's the, there was no virus hypothesis, okay? And both camps seem to look at the other with a lot of suspicion. Like that the, the no virus camp looks at the lab leak and thinks, well, this is just, you know, carrying on the fear porn. This is like just taking the message that there's a dangerous virus out there for the more conspiratorial community. Um, whereas the, the, the lab leak people uh, think the no virus thing, well, that's part of the cover up because Fauci doesn't want you to know that it came out of his lab. And then you've got the kind of like wild parts of it where, where apparently COVID is snake venom or something. You get these kind of more fringe ideas. So, which really right. to me replicates the, Okay, there were no hijackers. The buildings were holograms. No plane hit the Pentagon. Uh, kind of all these proliferation of theories that went on in the 9-11 truth movement. And there's this real problem of um, fracturing then. And that sort of disappointingly uh, seems to have replicated of COVID. So I, I followed the writing back and forth between Steve Kirsch and whoever in the no virus camp he was talking with. And I was just really disappointed that it, it went into this quite aggressive dialogue where suddenly like, Steve was wanting to put hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table to have a debate or something yeah. like crazy. Um, but it just, it seems typically difficult to get people in a room to have a civil discussion across boundaries. Has that been, has that been your experience? Oh, I, absolutely. And that was 
one of the reasons why um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but back in July um, of 2022, uh, Dr. Cowan, Dr. Kaufman, um, and a bunch of us said, uh, and Mark, Dr. Mark Bailey, he, he wrote up with Dr. Kevin Corbett. We did a, what I called it the no virus challenge. I believe it's officially called the settling the virus debate mm. statement. Yeah, I'm um, familiar with that. Yeah, it's, it might like you to tell us how that's going. Yeah. Yeah, well, sadly, not a whole lot has come uh, from it because no one will touch it. Like the biggest pushback that we got from that um, that uh, statement was from people who were in the like the Steve Kirsch, uh, Jeremy Hammond types, you know, that are, uh, you know, against vaccines, but they still promote the belief in the virus and, and this whole bioweapon narrative. Um but the reason we put that that challenge statement out there was because you know we wanted to try and find a way that we could meet halfway. So we are saying the viruses don't exist. You believe that they do. So let's put it to the test. Let's put it through um, as close as possible to the scientific method as we can and see if we can demonstrate if a virus exists or it doesn't. You know. Um, using um, different labs that are blinded to the results, using samples from uh, patients that are said to have SARS-CoV-2 or, you know, healthy controls, um, people that might have lung cancer or influenza, you know, using samples from uh, multiple sources and seeing if these labs independently can recreate the same results, whether it was through their cell culture experiments, whether they can come up with the same electron microscope imaging if they can come up with the same uh, genome sequencing, all this stuff. And we, we felt that that was, you know, at least a way that we could kind of bridge that gap and see if we could come together and say, yeah, let's ask them to do these experiments. But like I said, it was the people like Steve Kirsch or uh, Jeremy Hammond and, and people on the, you know, the not accepting the official story, but still accepting the virus part and the bioweapon that were pushing back against us. And so it was kind of disheartening to see that. We thought they would be willing to, just in the interest of, you know, a scientific pursuit, see it carried out. And uh, it was instead ridiculed. And, and unfortunately we haven't really gotten any, um, as far as I know, we haven't gotten any uh, takers besides, uh, I think there was one uh, Dr. Kevin, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but he basically, and he, when he offered, it was kind of a, I'll do it for you guys, my lab, and uh, let's, you want to prove this, I'll do it. And he outed himself because we said we wanted it blinded. So if, if you're telling everyone that you're doing it, then that kind of disqualifies you. But, right, yeah. I think uh, it's, it seems to be a fundamental problem in any kind of truth movement or any movement that questions these, let's call them deep state events, these big events that go on periodically that change the nature of the world. But you would ideally want a big tent so that everyone brings their perspectives in and we can discuss things. But if you have a big tent, then people come in who are likely infiltrators or people who are um, just so far and so fringe that it's disruptive. So then you make the tent smaller. But if yeah. you make the tent smaller, it starts to be infighting between who should and shouldn't be in the tent. And it just seems to me to be a fundamental problem that I've certainly not resolved. Yeah, it is. And, and that's the problem. I mean, you, we even saw that with uh, the, you know, in the 90s with the HIV AIDS movement, there was, uh, you know, 
two different camps, those that um, were against the HIV equals AIDS hypothesis, who believed that HIV existed, and those who said it didn't exist, like, like you know, the difference between Peter Duesberg and someone like David Crow. So there's there's always this division, unfortunately, and, and we've, we've been noticing that as well. And so we're trying to find a way to uh, bridge that gap. And I know, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Eric Topolino's work. No. Um, investigative journalist here. He's been, he actually um, has been trying to get uh, people like Robert Kennedy Jr. Um, and his children's health defense uh, to give us equal airtime. You know, if you're, if you're going to sit there and talk about the, um, you know, we appreciate your work with the vaccines and showing that they're harmful, but if you're going to sit there and promote that the virus still exists and there's this whole bioweapon narrative, why don't you present the other side of the argument as well, that we are saying viruses don't exist, you don't have to fear bioweapon. Vaccines are absolutely unnecessary because the, the virus has never scientifically been proven to exist. So um, we've been trying to work as far as getting uh, equal airtime and, and just to do things respectfully. Like the, I, with with Curse, because you mentioned him, you know, his was kind of this boastful challenge. I'll, I'll challenge you to a million dollars anyone to debate but you have to put up a million dollars to do it which was ridiculous no one has that kind yeah, of money it's what you say if you don't really want to debate and even if he exactly. did right then he comes away looking like he absolutely wants to avoid a debate absolutely and that's how we took it like uh if you're honest in wanting to do a debate you don't throw a financial barrier be between it and so it was kind of a, a boasting hey look i'm challenging these people and no one's going to take me up on this well of course, none of us have a million dollars. And then his excuse was, why don't you go and get your financial backers to to pull it all together? I'm like, well, what kind of financial backers <laughs> do you think we're not, you know, in connection with a lot of uh, millionaires? But anyways, um, so, you know, we're trying to find a way to uh, bring us together so that we can discuss this issue. And if we are going to do, hopefully not debates, but discussions, you know, uh, or if there are debates, if they don't uh, go into this whole, you know, uh, divisive uh, ad hominem attacks and, and things like that. And that's why when you brought up Dan Wilson's video, I, I, that, I, I've, I've tried watching some of his videos and I don't like the, the approach. Like I, someone wanted me to have a discussion with him one time. I said, I won't, I won't do it. He's, he constantly attacks people and he throws out ad hominem attacks and he's not, you know, debating the actual issue, the, the, the evidence, he's just throwing out um, basically personal attacks on uh, Dr. Bailey, which was the video that he shared with me. And mm. um, there was a, a debate between Mark Bailey and, and uh, McCarran, and basically it devolved into an, uh, an ad hominem attack fest. And um, Mark did his best. He was really composed and he was respectful but the other side was not you know mccarran was not he and so we're trying to find ways to, to be able to discuss this and bring sites together where it doesn't devolve into these uh just personal attacks but it's very difficult i know it's a heated issue but um I, somewhat sometimes it feels like it might be more by design okay my really final question is what implications do you take 
from your research into areas beyond virology? Because you've gone into what seems like a really well-established science, well-funded, lots of people who are at least intelligent enough to get PhDs have poured their lives into researching things, which you're saying is kind of the equivalent of researching the fairies at the bottom of the garden. Now, that <laughs> might be a little bit too harsh. Maybe it's not too harsh. But it's not likely then that, okay, virology is this completely corrupted branch of science, but everything else is fine. And right. I wonder how this then shatters your worldview. And I think maybe a part of the resistance that's put up to this, I, and I'm just, I'm intuiting this because it's, it's kind of like, I recognize my own resistance when these kind of ideas come along, is that if this cracks and crumbles, what does it say about everything else in my life? For example, um, I think it's far more reasonable that viruses exist than men went to the moon. If you just ask me, you stop me on the street, I don't know anything about either of them, and you, you put this to me, well, I think it's more far more likely that NASA would fake a moon landing than all these thousands and thousands of scientists to be wrong about viruses. Or as another example, I was watching one of Sam Bailey's videos one day, and there was uh, one of the, the comments on it said, yeah, this is great. And another thing that's wrong, you know, quantum physics. And it linked to a YouTube channel with all these videos criticizing quantum physics, right? And I've bookmarked it so I can look at it when I'm 80, and it might be a fun project, you know? But yeah. The problem is there doesn't seem to be anything more ridiculous about virology as a science and all these other branches. So I, I'm intrigued and also scared by these ideas that there are, like in a lot of subjects, problems in the foundations. And because of the foundations and we're standing on them, we're not looking at them. So we don't see them, whether that's mathematics or physics or evolutionary biology or, or virology. So what's your general takeaway for our, the, the nature of human knowledge and how human beings are going out and approaching the acquisition of knowledge? Yeah, I think you kind of hit it on the head there. Like, um, it does when you start looking at like the the evidence for virology and, and what standards that we're trying to hold it to. Um, then you have to look at other areas as well uh, and hold them to those same standards. And so, uh, a person who has been extremely influential on me—I don't know if you're familiar with him. But his name is Dr. Jordan Grant. Um, uh, he. I'll, I'll send you, he did a, an amazing presentation on uh, the, the scientific method and, and how it's basically been corrupted and, and what science truly is and um, how you can apply the scientific method. It's, it's basically a, a barometer. If, if you can show that the, the evidence adheres to the scientific method, then you have science. If it doesn't adhere to the scientific method, then it's pseudoscience. And, and so it does make you start to question other areas. And, and it's easy to see when people are, you know, educated and trained in this system, like virologists are or doctors and stuff like that. And they're taught certain methods and, and this is the way things are. They're, they're, they're not taught to think, you know, critically and logically. It's more just memorization and, and this is uh, the way things are. And, so it's easy to see why they would have resistance to it. They built their whole careers on this. They have, um, you know, a huge financial investment, um, and so they're they're kind of in that point where they, they can't see the forest or the trees because they're so far in that they don't really look back at the foundational evidence and and verify if what we've been told up to this point was ever uh, scientifically validated. And so when you do start to pull on that thread, you start to see the, the issues and you can see that with other areas. Like I, I've just kind of recently, um, you know, I've kind of 
dipped my toes in a little bit with genomics with uh, the viral genomes, but just uh, DNA and RNA and all this stuff, you can start to see a lot of the same uh, fraudulent practices within that field. Um, immuno immunology is the same thing. Uh, I have done a lot of work looking into antibodies and uh, they're just as, you know, basically hypothetical entities, just like viruses. They don't have the, the evidence that something of the shape and form of what they say an antibody is. They've never found that actually within the fluids of a, of a person. They've never purified and isolated an antibody. And so, you know, everything is just theoretical. They have these ideas that they fit into a model based on a bunch of indirect evidence that they gather and they collect. And so um, it does make you want to start holding different fields to that same standard. But it is, I can understand what you're talking about, where it's kind of scary. Like what how do we know what we know is true then? You know, how much of what we've been told is valid uh, scientific knowledge and what isn't? So it's definitely an area that I'm, I'm starting to investigate more. But well, that, that was exactly what was on my mind, actually, because the genome sequences, I don't know where you're going with that, but I was just listening to a podcast on uh, the shaky foundations of virology and the man giving the interview also started talking about the DNA testing being shaky. And mm. I was shocked when I found out that fingerprints were not this gold standard of you could definitely isolate one person from their fingerprint. Apparently, they're, they're really shaking. Like a lot of courtroom evidence, like um, it, it's very interesting to listen to like the wrongful conviction people, the Innocence Project, in the same, just how, how dodgy courtroom science is. Like the idea that you can look at how a house burnt down and tell it was arson or footprint analysis or bite analysis is apparently complete quackery, just to total quackery. And lie detectors of they're not admissible in court here for, for good reason. They're, they're right like half the time or something. Um, but the one sort of really meant to be solid thing was uh, DNA, right? If, if someone's DNA turned up, that was like, you know, a one in 10 million or something. So, or yeah. you know, there might be like one other person in New York City who could have committed that crime. And I've never heard that question, but then I I'm, I do hear that question by people questioning the, the virus line. And that, that disturbs me, the idea that, okay, what have I been listening to on the uh, wrongful conviction podcast for the past few years then? Or when you have some like serial killer who's caught by their DNA, what how can this be? So that it is it does bring about that kind of sense of the world shattering for me. Yeah, the DNA thing is definitely interesting. I mean, I, I started doing a cursory look into just like the DNA tests and like um, there are people that would send, uh, you know, their the same sample to different companies and get completely different results. And, um, you know, they started, they, they at one point said twins, identical twins would have the same genomes or, or the same sequences. And then they said, well, they don't. So um, you can find a lot of, uh, or, or as you were talking about with the court cases and, and a lot of um, convictions being overturned because of the faults in the, the DNA sequencing. So we we find um, there's not a lot of this, you know, controls that are done within these uh, genomic exper experiments. And, you know, uh, there's a, a lot of uh, variation. I mean, if you look at just with uh, SARS-CoV-2, right now there's like 14.5 million genomes that are uh, submitted to the, the uh, database, the GSA database. And, you know, uh, from my understanding, none of them match up 100%. There's variations in all of them. Um, and so they, they can't sequence the same thing every time. And, and it will depend on the, the lab, the technology they use, 
um, in the procedures as to whether they get the same sequence. So there, there's a, um, a lot of question marks there. And, and I just re recently, I, just last night, I was reading the, one of the, the, the foundational papers on uh, nucleotides. And it's just insane the methods that this guy did to try and uh, present evidence that such a thing as a nucleotide exists. It's just a bunch of uh, taking pus and adding chemicals to it and seeing what it does and, and creating those, like there was different sludges and different, uh, it's even hard for me to explain. I, I just did a quick read on it, but it, it's just the methods that they use. There, there were no controls. He couldn't even uh, claim that what he found uh, had any bearing within a living organism because what he was using was dead materials. Um, and so the conclusions you, you, if you start at that that base, that foundational le level where that original paper came out, you you want to see where that logically you know leads to. So if he couldn't prove this substance exists, at the end he's like, I need to. My findings are incomplete, and future researchers that are more experienced chemists will be able to carry on hopefully with this in the future. And so then you have to look at well, then what did they do? What were their methods? What controls did they use? Like. Where did they, how did they uh, determine that using these different acids and, and different uh, protocols didn't completely change what they were working with? So it, it's just a, a lot of question marks. And like I said, I just kind of started looking into DNA and, and all that more in depth recently. So my, my uh, thoughts may change, but it's definitely, you can see a lot of the same uh, kind of uh, unscientific work being done. Okay, well, it'd be great to get you back in a year's time or so when you've gone deeper down that rabbit hole. <laughs> for now, I'll say thank you very much indeed, Mike. And uh, just yeah. anything else you want to say and uh, let people know about the, the website and the particular spelling of the website. Oh, sure. Yeah, so you can find my work. I actually have two websites now. Um, the first one is virology.com. It's spelled V-I-R-O-L-I-E-G-Y. Uh, just to emphasize the lie a little thing. And then... I also have a substack which I've been putting a little more uh, attention to recently. Uh, it's just mikestone.substack.com, I believe. Um, and uh, it's just uh, another way people can sign up and, and get newsletters. And uh, I can get some more information that's uh, maybe a little bit outside of virology or, or different aspects to it that I don't put on virology.com. So uh, two different ways that they can uh, access that, that information if they want to. Okay, brilliant. I'll, I'll just say virology.com, virology.com. It, it's an excellent resource. Anything you want to know about the, the background of any of these viruses, uh, that's a great place to go. So thanks very much, Mike, and hope to have you on again sometime. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It was fun. It was a pleasure.